Hi, everybody. Welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this morning? I am amped. I'm <laughs> amped. I have been on a foray into the heart of the mind of the main nerve of some interesting things in American cultural history. And I'm just very excited. Yeah. I'm glad to be back home in Vegas at my death. I think I'm back home. I could still be in traffic. You yeah, know? you really could. It could be a matrix type situation where you thought that you were home and you're actually back in the in the program. Very possible. You know, I could be stopped over briefly in Barstow and watching ants devour the remains of a not quite dead burrito. So it is possible. <laughs> it is possible. But I'm I'm holding on to my uh, my coffee mug at home, and I think if I were still in traffic or on the road or lost in an interdimensional situation. I've done well to remember something, you know, really homey and personal. So I, I've got my mug. Excellent. Very cool. Well, I just got done. I have a subscription to Mubi, which is a great streaming service that has a lot of art film, foreign film, independent film. Um, I have that in Criterion. Those are my two streaming services um, because they have these vast libraries of underseen and underappreciated films. And I watched... Uh, a film called Brother from 1997. So a Russian movie about a a young man who rolls into town and becomes a hitman. And <laughs> it was just great. I mean, it's got so much in there that's problematic. Um, there's a line at the very beginning where the hitman befriends a homeless guy who kind of becomes his sidekick. And uh, the sidekick is a German and the the hitman says, uh, you know, are you Jewish? And the German says, no, no, I'm just German. And the hitman says, uh, good, because I have a problem with Jews. And it's never remarked upon again. It's just a throwaway line. And I thought, holy cow, 1997 was the Wild West for this kind of stuff. Right. Couldn't put that in a movie right, right now. I mean, whenever you're talking particularly about problematic things or cancel culture, it, it can occasionally sound like you're arguing for the the thing that you're talking about. Like, we should have more movies that talk bad about Jewish people. But that's not what I mean at all. It's just sort of remarkable yeah. that a line like that used to just exist in movies. And in a broader sense, there used to be this kind of, uh, I don't know, just kind of casualness about making scumbag characters scumbags and... It's just like, but you can't even, you can't even say that because the words themselves are actually evil, right? And the words cannot be spoken. So I thought that was, that was interesting. That is, you know, and meanwhile, things like, uh, you know, killing people go on unnoticed. Is that's like, oh, it's a hitman. We can, we can of course have that. That's no problem there. Yeah, that's not the problem. No, that's not the problem. It's the, the naughty words. But Chris, you know, so it sounds like I just kind of want to wind you up and let you go for this episode. <laughs> so because it seems like you've got a lot to talk about. So uh, we haven't done any pregame for this one. And I think that that'll be good because we're going into it fresh. So go ahead and just tell us about your adventure and uh, the secrets you learned about the dark heart of the American West. 
Okay, thank you so much. All right, well, we did say that this uh, episode was we were going to look further at the issue of the spirit of place, spirits of place. And, and what I've just experienced really falls beautifully under that rubric. Uh, the gig was to go to Big Sur to the Henry Miller Library, and I have a lot to say about that, which is just a beautiful, funky, quaint, rustic haven of free-spirited literary uh, universal joy uh, to see Patti Smith, who is... Uh, I think one of the, the greatest surviving uh, artists currently who can really be said to be a, a crossover, pretty major uh, pop star, you know, um, but also um, she's a proto-punk <clears throat> uh, singer, songwriter, poet, uh, visual artist, memoirist, certainly a hero to many people, and obviously a very major uh, feminist hero. It was a great gig. I was in the company of my best and oldest friend, Phil Abrams, his wife, the poet and teacher, Michelle Bidding, and my friend, Diane Karajanakis. So the four of us rocked on up to the Central Coast, which I hadn't been to uh, for a while. I used to spend a lot of time there. In fact, I live just up the road. Uh, Highway 1 has got to be one of the most beautiful places in the world. You know, it's it's up there with the Amalfi Coast in Italy. Uh, many great places in Australia that were very spiritual to me, like the Great Ocean Road. A lot of just amazing things to say. Hawks wheeling through the fog, the crashing waves, elephant seals, yada, 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 on and on. But we were at the Henry Miller Library today. Okay, and it's it's a really wonderful facility. Miller lived there for uh, quite a substantial time uh, after he returned to America during the war years. And, you know, here we have a figure who there was some obvious mention of Henry Miller at this event. The uh, the custodian uh, curator, caretaker, kind of a Tom Bombadil figure. Uh, did put in a few words at the beginning, welcoming Patty, welcoming the audience, thanking the, the board members. It does take a bit of money to keep this amazing place amongst the redwoods and, and the pines right on Highway 1 uh, from being purchased and developed. And I, I celebrate that absolutely. But I have to say, I'm not sure that a lot of the people uh, attending really get who Henry Miller was, really. Uh, there was not the positioning of him as a great figure of, of personal and sexual liberation. Uh, my first thought was, when I came back to America <clears throat> in 2012, uh, I did a gig for the ACLU on censored literature. And I read a piece from Tropic of Cancer, Miller's breakthrough book, which was censored, which was one of the great mm -hmm. censorship yeah. stories of the 20th century. And I was the only one who caused any real offense. Uh, and I, I took a pretty mild passage. It does include the C word. Um, but there was a strange backdrop of ignoring Miller's role as one of the great 
liberators of the human spirit in, in writing and one of the breakthrough figures in the sexual revolution. I mean, I think you could mention uh, D.H. Lawrence in that category, but also, you know, Walt Whitman on the, on the gay front. Uh, mm-hmm. th- these great, big, universal spirits of generosity and possibility who happen to be very uh, expansive writers. There's something about Whitman's writing style that connects very much with with Miller's. It can be bombastic, it can be just wild and crazy, but beautifully lyrical too. And all of that possibility, I think, holds a key to what we call the 1960s counterculture. To some extent, I think where that started in, in, in really the best ways was a, an embrace of people like Miller um, and what he meant and his comment on, on American corporatism and uh, the sterility of, of American middle-class existence. One of my favorite books, which I can't recommend highly enough, is The Air-Conditioned Nightmare, which is available, like many of his books, from New Directions. He wrote that really uh, in the war years, before television really launched, before America became the strip mall, fast food, uh, constant bombardment of, of commercialism that, that we see today. And wow, was that prescient. I mean, he was just on the case. But the other thing that, that was interesting is that, uh, I mean, Patti Smith really is a figure, a feminist figure who is... She's a great hero of mine. I think she really is someone of, of real substance. 75 now. She put on a great show. It was really, really terrific to be there. Uh, everything was cool. Everything really was cool. But there was some sense that this new woke culture stream that we're in needs some serious critical review from smart, artistic people. We can't just keep nodding and going along with it because there is a platform of censorship and control that is being put forward on the part of the left. And this is exactly what what Miller, as kind of the ghostly host of the event, uh, he died in 1980. It's exactly what he fought against. I think there's, there's an aspect of what's going on that would have surprised him and horrified him. Uh, and, and there was kind of no commentary about that, you know, whatsoever. Um, there was no sense of here was a great figure of really kicked out the jams when it came to, to, to sexual liberation, you know, certainly from a heterosexual point of view. Uh, no, no mention of that. But there were in the midst of this great concert. So Patty brought all this really cool energy. And it was, I thought it was terrific. Somebody 74, you know, 75, really uh, reinventing uh, the stay young forever cool thing while not trying to be young at all. She was very, she brought her heritage, her experience, her, her showbiz, as well as her art. Mm-hmm. There was a great moment where uh, a woman sitting next to us uh, hollered out, how about some more energy? And, it was purely ironic because it had been a very energetic number. I don't think anyone else really in the audience or so, no one sitting nearby misunderstood. It was like, wow, like, 
<laughs> it was more like calm down, you know? Right, right. And uh, it was praise. But Patty just went New York on it. And so suddenly, well, how about some more energy from you, you mother truckers? You know? That's and it was funny. like, oh, okay. And it was just a simple misunderstanding of, uh, you know, a crowd uh, contribution that was perceived as kind of a heckle. But I thought, you know, there's something in that that says a lot about where we are today, where we are so quick to misunderstand in a fairly major tonal way what intentionality means, what someone means, you know, the really semantic depth of, of statements. We're focused on, on, I don't know, I think some pretty superficial things. It that fortunately didn't change the mood overall. I think Patty got with it a few moments later, and I think she also just is a trooper and just rocked on mm-hmm. and 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 really didn't care. But the third thing was, and and this event was really well managed. So we're on the really super narrow, curvy uh, highway one, and we all had to do the shuttle bus thing to get there. And we've all got our masks and we've got our vaccination cards. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, what the uh, mask situation was. Yeah. Well, look, it was very well done, <clears throat> and I don't want to fault anyone involved in this. I I do know that if the performer and the context had a different slant, if you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. I think MSNBC would have taken a very different view and said, oh, I don't know if this is such a good idea that these people uh-huh. are having this communal energy together. Uh, because, of course, you know, it's cool if you're part of that communal energy and then you, you, know, you share that sense of communion and the importance of live performance. But if it's someone that you, you know, you're not so keen on, uh, like Garth Brooks or someone like that. Oh dear, you know that might have yeah. been seen very differently. <laughs> but here's the moment that where everything comes together, and it's so simple and it's so predictable. But it was kind of a an interesting grace note ending. We're all up in the dark <clears throat> after after this great concert, waiting on the road. Two shuttles going to two different locations, and of course, there's quite a line there. I I think there were between five and seven hundred people there, say five hundred people at least. So we've got a few people to shuttle bus back to cars, and magically overhead, this is right on the coast in summertime. There was just this massive smear of stars. It was the, some of the best starlight I've seen in America. And I live, you know, in Nevada. Uh, it, it's very rare to get that on the coast in summertime. So we're, we're blessed, you know, it's just far out. Everything's good. But we're waiting in the shuttle and there's a line. And, yep, some people start cutting the line. Oh, These dear. good, you know, all this good, woke communal energy and everything and a woman behind me goes, wow, you know, we you just never get out of elementary school where the whole rule is take your turn, don't cut the line. Mm-hmm. And I, I just thought that was a very interesting ending to a very moving evening uh, that, that had a lot of churning emotions because Patty did mention, you know, some of the people that uh, – you know, have died along the way. Uh, there was a, a farewell to to some celebrities, 
Um, Jean-Paul Belmondo, I think, died just over the, the weekend. Mm-hmm. He did, yeah. So there was a, a sense, you know, she was generationally placed. She was all there. She was terrific. But the crowd, you know, you just can't get away from human nature. And I, right. I did think about, so to sum up these three elements, I felt that the, the, the ghostly host of the place, Henry Miller, and all that he represents and suggests, and his, all of his books are very strongly in print still, uh, but they're not really part of this new, they're, they're in print ceremonially. <clears throat> they're not part of this new book culture. Um, Kate Millett, one of the founders of second wave feminism, <clears throat> you know, branded him as a, uh, a, a an outright sexist. Uh, I think there's a lot of complaint about, uh, I mean, Henry liked his penis and he really, really dug women. And part of his notion of self-fulfillment and, and finding uh, purpose in life in addition to beautiful art and and his crazy writing, was a lot of sex, yeah. <laughs> and of a certain kind. <laughs> and I don't know if that kind of got through. I mean, we didn't really visit that too much. Then we had that weird heckle moment where there was a misunderstanding of a pretty simple comment, and yet that comment was oddly phrased. Why did well, you know? She could have just said, "Yeah, go, baby." Or, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was it was weirdly, it, it allowed for misinterpretation. Um, I mean, if someone said, if you said to me right now, well, Chris, how about some more energy? It would be like, well, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. it was that kind of thing. But then that cutting the line when this, all of these mechanics of the masks and the, it's the first time I've had to show a vaccination card. I, have you had to do that? Or, or uh, do you know about that? No, no, I've never had to do that. No, I, I have I, I not really had any exposure. Gonna, I really don't think that's going to fly in Oklahoma. I just, I just don't see it happening. Uh, California is a completely different world from this part of the country, and I just, I, I see that. Well, okay, so where I live in Norman, which is, uh, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, a tiny little blue oasis in a, in a sea of or a desert of red, I guess I should say. Um, It might go down for some of the shows that go on down the street from where I live. I could see that, needing a Vax card to get in. Um, But uh, in general, it's just, it ain't going to happen. I can't can't see it happening. Because there's there's too many... The reason why I say that is because one of the major economic engines is uh, football games, right? And those people are not going to be vaccinated and they're simply not going to go to the games if that's a requirement. And that's a lot of money on the line. So, so it just, yeah. It's just practical. Well, well, here's the other thing. I mean, I, I've lived a great deal of my life with, with passports of, of various nationalities. Uh, some of them actually legitimate and some not uh, being a real issue uh, but my my vax card, you know, what I had to show is really not much different than the library card from my elementary school going back decades. I mean, it just looks so humble and, just, you know, it, it just doesn't have any authenticity or reality. It is. It's completely authentic. But it doesn't if that's what we're hinging things on. 
Um, but the point I think is I, uh, that there we, we were trying to, everyone's trying to do the right thing, trying to do the right, trying, 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 you know? Yeah, right. And yet there are these realities that, that mm-hmm. you know, people cut the line. There's traffic issues. There's, we haven't, we're, we're, we're deluding ourselves if we're thinking that major, major structural changes are in play. The other thing that I would say is that, uh, well, and this is no fault to anyone. Uh, I really don't mean this in any critical way, but, uh, and I'm not surprised, but in this diversity and inclusion era, uh, I don't know. There might have been one black or brown person there. I maybe mm-hmm. I missed. You know, it was it was going on into into night. You know, so <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't uh, diverse and inclusive in in that sense. Mm-hmm. And it certainly wasn't diverse and inclusive in terms of the money for the tickets. You know. Yeah. No kidding. Right. Yeah. That's that's a big one. So. I took that away with me come and when I was coming back home, not surprised. I mean, LA has been, you know, the traffic capital of, of the world or certainly of America for a very long time. But of course on labor day, you, you can just imagine, I mean, that's why I feel like I'm still uh, really on the 210 freeway. I haven't even made the I-15 yet. I'm, I'm just stuck. You're, you're Michael Douglas and falling down. Exactly. And so, you know, where are we in terms of talking about these major structural issues when we look at these good intentions of choosing kindness and all these things that matter and that are real? You know, let's not forget science is real and feminism is for everyone and on and on and on. I mean, I'm really not criticizing those those intentions and those thoughts, but... I think, you know, the other side is, you know, there are just some insane people yelling at the sky uh-huh. and people are walking <laughs> right by. And I, yeah. I, I I can't help but think that that people like Henry Miller and Patti Smith, when she started out, they were, you know, they, they were not glossing over that in, in some sort of good intentioned or corporatized way. Right, right. There was a, you know, Smith got into trouble back in the late 70s. Um, see if I remember this correctly, because she had had a song with a word in it that I can't use on the podcast or we'll get compl- we'll get. I know what you mean, me. yep. But it's uh, I'll use the lighter version, right? So it was rock and roll Negro, except not, yes. not Negro. Um, and she was asked about it, I think by Rolling Stone. Um, uh, they were asking her about this, and she said something to the effect of, you know, well, you know, Mick Jagger is a, you know, boop. And then they're like, what do you, what do you mean? And she's like, she says, uh, she said that it was an artist mutant, right? She was trying to redefine the term as an artist mutant. Um, right. And, you know, so they kind of go, they kind of go back and forth. It was more involved than that. But I remember, uh, you know, hearing that and knowing about it because I'm showing my my new metal roots, but Marilyn Manson covered that song for, for one of his albums. So this I this didn't is, know that. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so there was this kind of along the Henry Miller censorship lines. Um, whether or not you think 
uh, Patty Smith's idea about that word and how she felt like, you know, she was kind of entitled to use it because to her it meant outsider. It, it, it strikes me as a very, very much a kind of lost time, right? And, and this idea of, um, of being able to sort of reclaim a word for everybody instead of turning it into a kind of politically charged thing that, that is split along racial bounds. I think she might've been onto something with that. Uh, but you know, but then we get all this kind of stuff about kindness and tolerance. And it's very strange that kindness and tolerance in this specific, um, in this specific issue, which, which, you know, it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of the show about how, like, I, I don't want to fight about these things so that I can have the right to say something racist or anti-Semitic. That's not what I mean at all, but it does seem odd to me that in the name of kindness and, and tolerance, we, you know, we create these, like these strict divisions where you get absolutely torn apart if you, if you violate them. It just, it doesn't seem very tolerant or kind to me. I couldn't agree more. And I think that is the essence of, of the argument here is that it, it really is. It, it, it's, it's not, well, it's beyond just practicing what you preach. It, it's, it's a strange cultural moment where people feel like carrying certain signs, uh, virtue signaling in certain ways is in itself delivery on, on, on the actual behavior that should underlie it. And, and more than that, that these signs, these signals, which are really all about self-interest and conformity, like being part of the group, you want to get on that shuttle bus, don't you? You know, uh, there's something very, very, at minimum, there's something very superficial and sad about that, I think. There's a lost energy. And when you do, you know, you have someone like Patty in front of you, I mean, she'd be ready to, to physically fight in, in, you know, in clubs in New York and the, oh, yeah. the whole passion and energy. And I mean, Patty she has but, kind of a scary figure. Sorry to interrupt, but totally. <laughs> Totally. I can tell you she's somewhere between she's a little she's like a cadaverous witch of mutant art and vision, you know? Right. I like that. That's good. You can put that they should, she should put that on her tombstone. <laughs> I don't know if she's going to die. I she I may know. not. I she know. may keep rocking and the there there was some so the band was very tight. It was all basically a music set. There was not. There was some kind of spoken word stuff, but there was not as much of that as I expected, and there was not the kind of rambling storytelling. But it was a very solid hour and a half, slightly plus of music. The uh, the bass player was a, nicknamed Flea, and he was absolutely sensational. You know, he was one of those people you wonder. Well, what's the diagnosis? Oh, the diagnosis is his bass player. You know, yeah. that's his deal. He was archetypally just into it. Uh, and her so son was the lead Flea guitarist. The, this isn't Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, is it? You know, I don't know, David. I don't think so. Their their bass player is named Flea. That's an interesting coincidence, if not. <laughs> well, what does he look like? He has he's a very distinct... He's bald. He's been in films. He's been in the Big Lebowski as one of the the nihilists. Um, he's he's kind of this bald, almost ape-looking 
uh, guy. Yeah, yeah, that was for, that was the guy from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> you know, oh man, see, this is I, I didn't, you know, I, I was just thinking of so many. Okay, great. You, I love how you do that. You, you connect. So, okay, you know, I'm not sure how many other people know. I didn't hear that. The people I'm, I was, we kind of were, we were dealing with a whole bunch of other stuff though, but. That's very interesting. Well, that would make perfect sense. That would make mm-hmm. perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's great. You know, I'm glad that you had a good time, and I'm interested in the kind of questions that this brings up, particularly about the juxtaposition between this sort of rigorous uh, "show me your papers, please" style, uh, you know, rules that have to be followed for human beings to gather, and yet here's here's the position that I'm going to take here. Actually, is the people cutting the line right? Uh, strikes me as humanity seeping through the cracks of all this rulemaking, right? And right, it is frustrating right. in the moment that it happens. Uh, there is nothing that gets under my skin like like people who can't follow simple rules that just make everybody's lives better. But I think that there is a level of having to cope with and embrace in a way the act of line cutting because in some small way it's just this little act of rebellion and that's that's how the humanity gets through i'm really concerned about vaccine passports and this kind of uh you know making sure that your vax card is up to date and the, and the reason why man is because i don't i don't know where it ends you know like do we have to get boosters every year do we have to tattoos tattoos you know implants yeah Yeah. and you know and people scoff at this kind of stuff when you compare it to things like nazi germany people find that very offensive but when you look at what's called mass formation in the psychological literature which is essentially mass hypnosis Mm -hmm. and how and how these things get started what what happens is that there's a free-floating anxiety in the air which i in america at least i would position as you know the 2016 election of donald trump and the constant media mill of telling people to be afraid of white supremacy and the fascists around the corner and what have you and a mass formation occurs when that free-floating anxiety can find a figure or an issue in which to to place all of its formless nebulous fears right uh in nazi germany that was jewish people and in America, in 2020, and in many parts of Europe, and you know, some places in the rest of the world, that's become the coronavirus, right? And I really worry about the outsized influence that something as simple as having an identification card to prove that you've had a vaccine. I'm I'm afraid of how that that can snowball. You see what I mean? Oh, I do see what you mean. But you know, you know, I think we can peel this back or blow it up bigger. To to something much much uh, larger than COVID, and any sort of social things happening at the moment, any one issue, and just say, how do we really feel about rules and going along with the program? If you really think about it, that is the underlying conflict question, battle, investigation that human history in the modern era is really been about and it's how we got to the modern era it's how we got to an enormous number of other conflicts it's certainly the question for all artists 
I mean, now we have a program. What I'm concerned about is a program of of nominal censorship, if not outright censorship, of a control not just of who is getting published, who has access to the microphones of culture, but the content, the content of of what what constitutes a, a, a message, a story, a song. Any kind of of engagement with what's happening today, how, who who's determining that? What do we have to show? What what credentials do we have to show on that front? That's mm-hmm. really what scares me. And I thought it was very interesting that, that in the heart of such a beautiful place, which has such importance to American culture generally, but certainly the counterculture, we had a great rule breaker in Henry Miller. I mean, absolutely archetypal. And mm-hmm. we've been talking about archetypes in our um, behind the paywall segments and what that means. And I'd suggest that, that Patty Smith has reached archetypal stature herself. And she's not exactly uh, a rule follower, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a real con. I mean, where, where do we, how do we package the rule idea? Uh, bigger than any one specific issue, whether it's COVID or what words we use or what sign we have in front of our house, you know. Well, how do you feel about how how do we negotiate that? So I have a somewhat long answer. I'm gonna leave it rolling for just a second because Gus is awake. So I'm just gonna go grab him and I'll be right. I'll be back in thirty seconds. Sure. I think that's a perfect interlude counterpoint the world stepping in and it ties in with one of my thoughts you know of of, you know while all of these ideological changes are going through the superstructure continues money traffic who's got you know jobs where people live you know there's a lot of stuff that the world keeps going on despite what we think we're doing with it Yep, exactly. All right, Gus. Gus has arrived. Cool. <laughs> we, have a, we have a third mic now. Um, all right, Gus. All right. So when it comes to to rule following in general, I'm of two minds because I uh, I am somewhat embarrassed to admit that I am a fan of rules to a certain extent, particularly when they apply to things like cutting the line. Um. I think that we need them to a certain extent just to keep everything baseline fair. Mm-hmm. Um, I think and safe <laughs> and and safe. Sure, sure. Um, but I think that as with anything, you have to kind of bend and stretch the rules at regular intervals to test their durability and to, I guess, prove that you're still a human we still have that wildness in us we know you know our ancestors wandered the the jungles and the plains and hunted and didn't really follow anything resembling a rule set until we got the you know Hammurabi's code so it's i don't have any time really for people who do unpaid work enforcing rules that's where i think the, re- the real problem is i believe in a strong demarcation between people whose job it is to enforce rules whether that's a bouncer at a bar 
or even controversially the police, right? As imperfect as those two positions might be, those are our appointed enforcers of rules. And I think there becomes a problem with society in general, both when people break the rules too often, petty or not, but also when people, petty or not, take it upon themselves to enforce the rules. When everybody becomes a cop, we have a real problem. So that that's my read on rules in general. I think they're they're good if they're agreed upon and they're tested and seen to be robust, but I don't I don't agree with them when they become uh you know, neighbors snitching on neighbors and you know, and we're calling the cops for everything because you know, your neighbor has their music up too loud. As with anything, it's nuanced. You know, you have to you have to learn when to just shrug it off. When people cut in line, you have to be able to let it go, I guess. Unless you're willing to go to the mat over somebody, <laughs> over somebody cutting you, you know? Are you willing to, to beat this person up? Well, then you just kind of let it go and try to realize that everybody else in line isn't doing that. And, uh, and that person will get their their karma repaid at a certain point. <laughs> well, you know, okay, that, I think that's very well said, and that, that is a, a good performance of, of a nuanced view. Uh, I mean, the other side of it, and I, I really want to say how mellow the whole thing was, there was, there, there was really no super presence of, well, no presence really at all that I could, you know, see of bouncers or the kind of security that – you know, I'm used to in Vegas, you know, they always anticipate, well, it's not going to just be people cutting the line, you know, and we're going to have some people who, who know how to deal with things that are a little bit more serious than that. Mm-hmm. And there was just some phenomenally pungent dope smoke in the air. I mean, I, I, I don't know, con- a contact high was a very real possibility. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was basically mellow and cool. Mm-hmm. But I think that idea of there, there's something in this notion of, of the nuanced uh, nature of rule following. And I, I like your idea of, of people who are kind of non, they're working as unpaid ambassadors of enforcing rules, you know, yeah. uh, there, there is a problem with that. Uh mm-hmm. But really, you know, it was a great sort of social occasion. People were very cool. It, no, there were no car accidents. I don't think anyone got run over. I mean, it, it, it really was a total. If I had organized that event, I'd say, look, that that was that was very successful. But and, it just you know, was and, interesting. And the other thing with rules too is that they're not set in stone. They're not, you know, God's rules. They're every rule is an experiment. And every rule can be overturned and proved to be wanting and in need of improvement. You know what I mean? So it really, the nuance that's required is that you have to take everything on a situation by situation basis. There are rules that were in this country 60 years ago that people might not agree with today. Well, most people anyway. So it's, it's another thing is that when you have the line breaker, that is somebody who is purely breaking a rule for their, you know, sort of petty gain. It's the same thing as, I don't know, a shoplifter who's stealing not food, but makeup or, you know, movies or something like that, right? Like there's there's this category of rule breaker who's doing it uh, 
without any interest in changing an overall unjust system and is instead just doing it to to make a quick buck right but then mm-hmm. there's there are other rules specifically about uh surveillance and you know uh what's the word for for showing papers you have surveillance for being watched and then the word for you know somebody stopping you and asking you to show your identification i don't really know what that is authoritarian validation i suppose okay yeah so rules like that if you are um if you're disobeying those rules and this is what this is what some people have a hard time grasping right is that when you disobey a rule like that you're you're actually disobeying a larger principle because there is no there is no material benefit for you breaking those rules right you're definitely not going to make any money by arguing with somebody about whether or not you should show a vaccine passport but you're arguing mm-hmm. the the principle of the rule people who you know went to civil rights marches to protest um those rules they they didn't most of them anyway like they got you know they got hosed down and got the dogs sicked on them you can't really say that they were breaking those rules necessarily to to make something some like quick money or you know it, it um you see what I'm saying? Like, just like the the two different yeah. types of of, re- of rebellion there. You know, I mean, there's, it's it to me, it's it's kind of apples and apples and oranges. You know, right? Tell me, what are your? Uh, and I, I want to make sure I painted the picture sort of uh, clearly enough because we're looking at you know this beautiful sort of cove, kind of natural chapel alcove in the redwoods and. Uh, electric candles and just a really nice kind of, uh, well, sort of Tom Bombadil and his wife sort of vibe of the whole place. It's it's it. I guess you could say it's a hippie haven, little you know, uh, garden of of possibility that uh, is the Henry Miller Library refuge, and it is a funky, uh, classic California coastal rustic. Uh, sort of expanded cabin uh, filled with really great books. It delivers on every promise that mm-hmm. it, that it maintains. I think Patty Smith certainly as a performer certainly delivered on every promise that, that, that she could be associated with. And it was celebratory. It was, it was a good vibe. And yet I think it was, it would be very difficult for anyone well, maybe if you were really young and just had had were along for whatever reason, I'm not sure how you would have gotten there or heard of her. Or, or but for anyone of of well, say over forty, uh, I think there was a kind of an elegiac, uh, wistful sense of the the changing of a guard, a big guard, not just Patty, not. The whole movement that came to fruition, uh, and movement is really too organized a word. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. The kind of humanism that we talk about of, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. blew up in the 60s and 70s. I mean, we would we often talk about Terrence McKenna. I would include him in that. We're just up the road from Esalen Institute. John Lilly <clears throat> had a lot to do with that. Robert Anton Wilson just lived up the road in Santa Cruz. I mean, there's just so much uh, great energy. And I don't know if it really, I was trying to think, 
is it surviving in 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 that place and that event is is that a beautiful performance of it continuing mm-hmm. or did i really feel some sense of of big goodbye mm mm-hmm. Big goodbye in terms of the the kind of spirit that artists like Patti Smith and Henry Miller bring to the the conversation with a capital C. Is this yes, yes. Yeah. That that's my question. That's my question. Uh you know, I'm forever the optimist, and I do believe that these things go in cycles. And I think that we are in a moment right now where the wheels are beginning to come off on the woke thing. Because I'm seeing people having a problem with it at every turn. You know, this used to be the realm of a few prominent, but uh, at times marginal figures. So there were non-marginalized people like Joe Rogan, who've always kind of spoken out about it and his sort of intellectual dark web uh, orbit. And But now I feel like everywhere I turn, there are anti-woke podcasts, people who are kind of looking around and saying, hey, this whole canceling thing is a little messed up. What are we What are we doing here? You know, John Ronson's done some great work with his book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Um, I think that we, once we get through this, whatever this is, I think that kind of spirit of taboo breaking and real exploration, at times uncomfortable exploration, will in fact make a return now i don't know how long that's going to take but we are definitely in a hyper commercialized hyper middle managed scenario where it feels like every aspect of our lives has a manager that we have to report to Mm -hmm. it does i mean it feels to me like this all happened so fast too i found myself thinking wistfully about 2000 the year 2008 right <laughs> not even oh, that long ago. i remember when yeah 2012 right i mean of just being able to enjoy things and joke around and have none of these kind of rules on my mind you know so i think it happened fast i think that free-floating anxiety that i mentioned earlier has a lot to do with it um we're basically right now in a time of religious fervor, whether that has to do with race, gender, uh, the climate, or now coronavirus, right? And almost nobody is thinking clearly about these things. Uh, but I think the freaks are going to come back. I think the freaks have to come back. I think that this is this is our, our 1950s, and we're going to roll into our 1960s, whatever those look like, with iPhones. I think... I like I look I like the the attitude there and I like the articulation of some points and I think that that word freak is really really important because talk about an inclusive word I mean a lot of people can fit into that strange tent and they don't stay in that tent very long because they're they're freaks and it embraces a whole range of things that that aren't so easily categorized, labeled, and packaged. You know, I w- one of the things that has been on my mind very strong, and I've been trying to find a focus for it, and you're helping me with it, is that I think we're all kind of um, clear about what a corporatized 
world looks like. And it's very easy to blame the major brands, Amazon, Nike, you know, the major social media platforms and Wall Street as an industry, if you like, you know, we we, we get all of that. I, I don't have any problem seeing those influences on my personal life. But what I have a little bit more trouble articulating is some kind of commercial financial pressure, which is more than just money. It's social patterning that I don't think really uh, fits quite as neatly under, under the rubric of, of corporatization, you know, um, do you have a thought on what what I'm trying to say here? I, I'm looking for a I'm looking for a complementary term to sit with and possibly as a subset under corporatization, where it's the same effect, but I don't think we can just blame uh, you know giant global businesses that are in fact you know employing lots of people and doing good things, and we're all happy customers of. Could it be maybe the unpaid intern aspect of? of this corporatism that people become small clones of the of the kind of corporate structure because that's what i meant i mean i think that corporations have undue influence on our world of course they do but it really does seem that with the advent of things like instagram and tiktok people have become uh, sort of brands unto themselves you know the legal mm-hmm. ruling that that corporations count as as people, the inverse of that becomes true as well. People become corporations, right? And so, the Byung-Chul Han, the philosopher who I'm a huge fan of, talks about how uh, Foucault's panopticon, right, his his kind of biopolitics of you know the the state kind of monitoring every aspect of of your life and reducing things to what. Agamben calls bear life. Han advances that by beginning to say that, you know, we have actually become our own jailers, our own, uh, the, the government doesn't need to make a panopticon anymore and neither do corporations because we're all little corporations that enforce the house rules in our own spaces, right? So I'm not sure if that helps uh, no, I think that's about. absolutely spot on. And that that's certainly whether if we haven't quite I, I like the any reference to Panopticon is an idea. I think it's beautiful. But that certainly gets to uh, the dynamics of what I'm talking about. And it's an extension of a line that that I've mentioned before. And, you know, I've discussed of from Thoreau, you know, going back to the 1840s, we've become the tools of our tools. Uh, that's exactly what I'm talking about, where, where the blame is not so, if, if we want to say blame, just can't be located within, you know, Amazon or, or Nike or Apple or whoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've taken it on board. We've it's become an internalized, in, yes. internalized master slave dialectic, right? That's it. Um, that's it. And, and, and that really is the problem. And the only thing that's going to break people out of that is once they get tired of being their own slaves. But there's that counterbalance where they also get to be their own masters and the masters of their own little petty domain. And the being tired of being your own slave has to outweigh being your own master, right? I've found this with my 
obsessive compulsive disorder and my anxiety disorders, where I have a very real and tangible master-slave dialectic going on in my own mind at all times. And the only way that I got through it was by eventually saying, you know, enough is enough. Like, I would prefer to live in a world where I do have a little anxiety, you know? I am a little scared of things at times because the freedom that that grants me by kind of unshackling the slave within, if you want to put it that way, uh, is the juice becomes worth the squeeze, right? So people have to, in a weird way, get tired of themselves. And that will happen. Ooh, nice. That, nice. That, will, that will happen. You will, it, It'll have to come from inside first. And I think that uh, if people get... And this might seem like out of left field, but I don't think it is at all. Once people kind of get outside of the processed food and, you know, alcoholism and, and TV, Netflix stupors that they're in and are able to kind of think clearly and value things like freedom and spirituality and, you know, and kind of being your own person, that's when they'll start fighting back against themselves. But until then, b being the being half of a master is just is it's too too juicy right it's too it's too good to have this false sense of having control even if it's only control over you know this chained up part of yourself nice nice i think that was a good rap and i love the little hints of Gus's vocalizing in the back. You guys are a pretty good ensemble there. He's cheering me on. He said he's t he's saying, you know, speak on it, Daddy. Speak on it. Tell the people. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in one of our themes is is, is the idea of of structural, big, physical, tangible change versus ideological language speaking, virtue signaling, signage messaging. You know, there is this schism going on. How much of your uh, attitude and, and view of life, and I love that, that you're an optimist, and I think I am too. And mm -hmm. I, 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 it's, a little bit under, it's a little bit under a cloud just of, of the last, uh, I think, the trips to Seattle and, and this, I, although I had a great time both times. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, when you go out in the world at this time, you, you get a lot of... Uh, a lot of stimulus and a lot of input. Do you think that that having a child has given you or imposed upon you uh, optimism of the kind that you've been talking about? Oh, absolutely. I don't have any more time for, for what's called doomerism. Uh, <laughs> worrying about things like climate change or systemic oppression. Um, uh, the uh, even the coronavirus, I will say controversially, um, you just you 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 literally can't because you know it's the biological imperative to have to have children, and once you have children, your whole world shifts to just like mm -hmm. making sure that this little kid's life is better than mine. That's the idea. You just don't you don't mm -hmm. want your kids to have a worse life than you. Um, so I have the amended version of doomerism, which is that I have doomer optimism and it's not nihilism. <laughs> I it's love not, that. It's not, it's not any of that. No, but it's, it's an acknowledgement of things, you know, and this has driven people crazy when I discuss the current uh, health crisis and the climate crisis and things like that. It's very much a kind of, well, there's nothing that we can do about it. 
And the response to that is, well, what do you mean? So we just give up? And I say, oh, no, absolutely not. But you start to focus on, I don't know, your your homeowners association, right? <laughs> you start to focus right. on this sphere that you're that you're in, this kid, making sure he gets a good education. Your mom and I talked about this, right? I was very uh-huh. inspired by what uh, Ellen was telling me about, you know, making sure that this little guy has teachers who are experts in what they teach so that he can grow up to actually know things, right? And <clears throat> excuse me, and um so basically, I just I don't find any any real value in meditating on the things that I can't change. Classic Marcus Aurelius Seneca stoicism, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you really have a choice about what bugs you on a day-to-day basis. And to be frank, I'm just I'm t- I'm tired of that particular master, you know, holding the kind of the keys to my cell, you know what I mean? And and so yeah. I, I I choose I choose to be uh, realistic but optimistic. Doomer optimism. Oh, I'm down with that. I think that's great. I think that's really uh... the world is ending, and yet here we are. What are you gonna do? Which is you know of course the you know the great eternal uh, truth. You know it, it down the ages. From the peasant class to the hermits in the mountains to uh, slaves paddling boats in ancient, ancient times to people in maybe some strange furs painting in caves. I uh, I noticed that, um, to go back to Henry Miller, um, there is a, a lovely preface that is in front of the uh, Rosicrucian uh, Trilogy. Sexus, Plexus, and Nexus, written by Erica Jong, who I, I have a lot of time for her. I, I think she's quite fun. She's an interesting writer. She's an erotic body woman. But she ends with an interesting comparison that uh, of Miller to um, uh, the Chinese uh, sages in, 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 in Yeats' poem, Lapis Lazuli. Their eyes, their ancient glittering eyes are gay, you know, in the face of doom, in the face of crisis, in the face. I mean, doom is nothing new. Doom is it, doom is the business of humanity that, that it's as old as our fears in the caves, as our sadness of death and loss. Uh and oh, did I tell you this? I, I found in my little tangential, but right on the beat. Uh, I found um, a recording I'd made back in the 1980s. I must have digitized it about, oh, I don't know, somewhere in the 90s. But it's a a tribal elder in a very remote part of the Gulf province of New Guinea. And he is just doing a a lamentation for for his wife. Yeah, Um, yeah, you told me about this, yeah. Oh, man, we might have to play it at some time. I mean, it's just... I, I feel very honored that that I was able to hear that live. He's an untutored natural musician, but there is some beautiful sense of the entire human story, certainly the human love story, uh, men and women, uh, parents coming together, that the sense of community, what this what this woman meant uh, to her children, to him, and what it must what it meant to him. To, to survive her, you know? Yeah. Um, 
I, I hear in that that song uh, a great sense of of honor and and joy, but I think he he is also very lonely. He, he might have wished he was, would go first. So, right. One, to sum that up, I think what what is puzzling now to me uh, about this era in American history, human history, and certainly the modern age. I think we were torn between seeing ourselves as some radically new moment in the human story, which I don't really believe is true, and yet dealing with the fact that we are we do have some unprecedented things to deal with. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. Well, yeah, I understand that, but yes, there are some new things, and yet Indeed. we're also not that special either. Mm-hmm. Com- well, complete societal collapse is different when you have a society such as ours. It's a different story, right? When it's built up the way it is. When there's 7 billion people and you have worldwide climate change and collapse, it's new. Unless you subscribe to some, uh, you know, antediluvian uh, theories about civilizations, which, you know, could be true in a Fordian way, right? Um, it's very unique, but... I think we're going to move over to the Patreon episode now, but I want to to actually leave with what I think is most definitely going to be the title of this episode, something Chris said that I think is worth meditating on. Doom is the business of humans. Okay, okay. And for people joining us in the paywall, I, I got a little bit excited at the start of this, and uh, we have to go back to our ongoing experiment with David's mind of giving him five words to choose two that he has to integrate. And he also gets at the end, and he's doing really well on these. And I, I people should join us behind the paywall just to hear uh, David's improvisations on this. He gets an imaginative challenge in very different registers each time. And he's got an interesting one coming up that he's not expecting. So join us. Excellent. All right. See you on the other side, folks. Thanks.